0: Leviticus 8 this morning, and to understand our text as we come to it in Leviticus 8, we need to understand how ceremonies work, because chapter 8 is a ceremony, and a ceremony is a formal occasion, usually at a time where we're celebrating something and where somebody is going to change from one status or taken from one status into another. Now there's other uses of ceremony but they are typically formal and they're celebrations or they do have some significant meaning to them. The wedding example the wedding ceremony for example is one of those where we take an individual couple and we go through the process of the ceremony and Once we complete that ceremony, they are now, their status has changed. They're no longer single. They are a couple committed, devoted to each other. They go from being single to being married. And they do this through a a few rituals or a series of rites, rituals, whatever you want to call those things. So we will exchange, usually every ceremony will at least have the exchange of the rings and the exchange of the vows. And there's other things as well in those. In those ceremonies, depending on your culture and your background, I've only been married for six years, but I have one Um, example—I mean, one. There's many, but one memory that sticks out to me in my wedding and from my wedding rather—and it was uh, a mistake on my part, so we get to laugh at my expense this morning. But uh, when we were when we were married, we decided one of the things, or when we were getting married rather, when we were playing this ceremony, one of the things we wanted to do was have. Um, like a candle lighting. Now, you guys know there's other ways to do this This part of the ceremony, like the sand. You need to pour the sand together, and it's symbolizing two different family units coming together or two different individuals coming together. You know what I mean, right? We decided to go with the candle option, and so what we did was we had our mothers light those candles during the ceremony. So they came up and, and they lit those candles, and my job and Bailey's job was to then come up and take those two individual candles and, and light the other candle. And uh, we did that, and after I lit my candle, and we lit the the one main candle together, we both put our candles back, and I licked my fingers and blew mine out, and I left Bailey's and the main candle together, and I, what does that that say, well, we're supposed to leave those written, what is that, my family's probably thinking, well, he's ditching us, and he's going, you know, to Bailey's family, see you later, Luke, we're not going to see you anymore, right, that's what this signifies is, is two becoming one, two families, two individuals as well, but you know, in my nerves, I left my family, I guess, at the altar and uh, I was gone. And uh, that's not been the case. That's why we moved to Ontario for a few years. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> nah. Anyways, so, but uh, every ceremony has their own rights, has their own elements of the ceremony that make it special. And they all mean different things, and certainly that was a part of ours and a funny expense in ours. But in Leviticus, what we see is a ceremony of consecration, that word consecration. Aaron and his sons are going from being Israelites to being holy priests, to being set apart to serve God and to serve his people in the temple. And so as we walk through this chapter, I want to show you, and hopefully you see it in the text, the different rites that were used in order to set these people, these priests, Aaron and his sons, apart. And hopefully you see the connection between what they went through and what we similarly walk through as believers. And hopefully when you get to uh, Leviticus 8 next year in your Bible reading plan, you can say well, instead of saying, you know, this chapter has nothing to do with me, it's an ordination of the priests thousands of years ago, you can say, oh, this means everything for me. And that's our goal with this text this morning as we walk through this ceremony. Because there was purification offerings, there was special clothings, there was washings, there was anointings, all of these in this ceremony. But in order to get into that, before we Before we dive in, I want to define that word consecration for you. We've had that word come up several times as we've studied through Leviticus. Things like holiness, words like uh, sacred, anointing, all of these words have similar meanings. And uh, consecration is along those lines. And when you separate a person or a thing or an object, a, a place, and you take it from its everyday secular use, and you dedicated it exclusively for something holy and sacred. And that's obviously been done to us as Christians. We've been, we've been uh, chosen by God to serve Him. And certainly that was the case with the priests as well in this text in Leviticus. And so we're going to walk through a consecration ceremony as described. And you're going to see that much of this is what the reality that we live already as Christ followers. And so you'll see the connections But if we would, if you would please just turn in your Bibles, or as you're there rather, uh, in Leviticus 8. I want to read the first four verses and then we're going to just skip down into verse 10. So just follow along or follow on the screen behind me if you would. Let's uh, read Leviticus chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Going down to verse 10. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at the ceremony of consecration this morning, there are a few things I want you to see. The first one being the preparations and getting ready for this ceremony. Now, if you've ever walked through a wedding, you get, you know, that feeling of preparations and as a guy, you know, you do nothing, you just say yes to everything and uh, the wedding day comes and it all happens great and you thank your now wife for such a great job that she did later, but there's preparations. That's That's not what I did. I helped. There's preparations, and there's certain elements and rites that we bring into our ceremony. Garments, as we read here, the anointing oil in verse 1 to 5, we see it all. The bowl of the sin offering, the rams, there's two rams, there's a basket of unleavened bread, and all these elements brought to the temple to participate in this ceremony, to be used, rather. And much like the case of a wedding, we have the wedding dress, we have the rings, the officiant, we have the vows, the bride and groom themselves... And what's interesting is that God called Aaron and his sons. In this particular instance, God called them. this ceremony, unlike the wedding ceremony, was not something that Aaron and Moses and, the, and his sons thought up, you know, as far as how they're going to serve. God was the one who designed it. And when we read through Leviticus 8, we see 11 different times this phrase, as the Lord commanded. And so this was clearly, very obviously A ceremony that God had his hand in, that God designed, that God wanted them to participate in. This wasn't something that they got to, you know, sprinkle in their little differences and their ceremonies and rites. And so it's God who desires fellowship with his people... And it's God who designs, as we have already said in Leviticus, God is the one who prescribes for us how to worship him, how to come before him, and how to serve him. And that certainly is true as we read through our Bibles. God is very clear about what and how we ought to worship him and what that ought to look like. But in this call, this call is, is a call of grace, total grace to Aaron and his sons. And God uses sinners. We know that reality. That God uses sinners to do His work for the kingdom. If you've been reading in your Bible study about a week ago, your Bible reading plan, Exodus 32 was our reading about a week ago. And in Exodus 32 was the golden calf story. And we know the golden calf story, right? Where Moses goes up to the mountain to hear from the Lord to get the, eventually get the Ten Commandments and, and more laws from God. And Aaron is down on the ground with the Israelites and they start grumbling. They go to Aaron. They say we need god, we need a god. Where is Moses? He's been gone for too long. We need, you know, a god to worship. And so Aaron says bring in, you know, give me some gold, donate some of your gold, your earrings, your rings, that kind of thing and Aaron just throws it in the fire and out pops a golden calf. At least that's how he describes it to Moses, right? You know, I just put it in there and out came a golden calf. I don't know what happened there. You know, and clearly, you know, there was more to that than what he said. Now, Aaron didn't necessarily, you know, initiate that idolatry, but he was the leader at that time while Moses was gone, and he never said anything. He never called them to repentance. He never stepped in and said... And said anything. And we know now, given Exodus 20, Aaron broke the first commandment that God had wrote down on those tablets. Do not make for yourselves a graven image, right? That was the first commandment. And Aaron led or allowed the nation of Israel to do that and to fall in that way. And so when we think of, you know, God's call of grace in our lives and on the lives of those, we think of Paul who was, you know, killing Christians. We think of uh, David who had, whom his adulterous relationship led to murder, right? We think of all these other relationships. We think of Abraham and Noah and their sin, and I often aren't drawn to Aaron, and yet when we read Leviticus 8 here, this is after he had already um, allowed or participated in this sinful act in breaking of the first commandment, and God is going to use him, and he's going to say, no, you're still going to be the high priest. You're going to represent my people before me you know in spite of yourself and i think that's just a great testimony of the grace of god how he uses sinners and aaron you know was just as much a sinner as the rest of us and certainly that can be lost on us at times so worth looking at and then as we think of the preparations we also have the congregation themselves In verses 1 to 5, the congregation is there, and this is a public ceremony, much like what we do with our baptisms. It's a public ceremony of, of declaration of what is going on for people to witness, to see the acts of faith and the acts of obedience that we are participating in, and certainly Israel would have witnessed and been a witness to, you know, what had happened here and been able to, in some ways, hold account to account the priests as they lived out their service to God. But the same is the reality for us as believers. You know, our call uh, as God's servants is a public call. And there are people who watch us. And there are Christians who watch us. And there are non-Christians who watch us. And they see us. And, And it's wonderful that we affirm our relationship and our allegiance to Christ. It is great that we do that. But sometimes we fail to, in our lives also live out that allegiance to him in our values and in our speech in the way that we use our time in our actions and we know that actions speak louder than words and so if we affirm allegiance to christ it ought to be not just in this affirmation of yes i follow christ but my life as well does and people certainly do see that and pay attention to that and we ought to be careful because of that but as we continue through this ceremony we come to in verse six this washing if the priests were going to approach a holy God, they needed to clean themselves up physically. They needed to be clean. And that's why there are laws uh, in the Israel, for Israel, rather, of uncleanness and cleanness, right? When it was When we touched a dead animal or a dead person, you were unclean. There was rules for that, and you needed to be clean before coming to a holy God. That makes sense, given God's character. As I was studying through the commentaries this week, this quote stuck out to me. It was this outward action of cleansing here in verse 6 represented the desire for inner spiritual cleansing. This physical action represented a desire for the priests to be spiritually clean. And certainly this washing in verse 6 was going to fully... uh, uh, happen when the sacrifices come later in the ceremony, but this would have pointed towards these sacrifices because this washing with water did not cleanse them from their sins. It cleansed them, you know, in their physical bodies, but not spiritually. And so, for those of us who serve God and those who are called His children, we ought to have a desire to be clean and to deal with our sin, right? And we don't want to mistake that for I have to clean myself up and be perfect before I can follow God, because that's not true. But the reality is that God made a way for our sin to be dealt with, and because of that, what is our desire when we come to a holy God who dealt with our sin? Is it to deal with that sin and to be clean from that sin? Not in the sense that God is not going to love me or accept me until I'm clean, but that, hey, he made a way for that to be done with. What's my approach to dealing with that sin? Because if perfection was required, and that was a requirement for serving God, then God wouldn't have called any of us, and he wouldn't have used any of his people in the Old Testament. So perfection is not required of us today, but what is required is the seriousness of dealing with This sin that can get between God and ourselves. And it's not just the big sins. It's the little sins as well. That we deal with those things. Do we desire to be clean before God? Knowing that we are already and have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ as we've sang about this morning. Because for us, the reality is that we are so unworthy to serve God, to be called by God, to be saved by God. We are completely unworthy. And we know that, and sometimes we are reminded of that, but God, through his son on the cross, dying for our sins, made a way for us to be worthy before him. And because he did that, we ought to take serious this desire to deal with sin, because it required the death of his son, his beloved son. And so this washing was to point forward to the sacrifices that were eventually to be made, which we will get into later in the ceremony. And the third part of this ceremony we see in verse 7-9 to is the clothing itself, the priestly garments that the priests wore. When we read in Exodus 28 and 39, as we are right in the middle of that in in our reading plans, we read a description of these garments and what they looked like. And I would encourage you maybe just to go home and Google search priestly garments, get an image up, just see what they look like. And, and you can see, you know, all that was entailed in the garments. Because we're not going to walk through all of that. You can read Levit- or Exodus if you'd like to see it. But the reality of these garments is that the high priest's preeminence, their distinguishability was shown in what they wore, that they were distinguished. They were set apart for something different. So not just that God called them, but even in this, the clothing that they wore. And this is a reality for us as we think of going to funerals, as we think of wedding ceremonies. There is a distinct uniform, or you will see distinct clothing at some of those things. You will see black clothing at, at, during a time of mourning. You will see the bride, certainly in her dress, at a wedding ceremony, you will see people dressed up for that. It gives purpose to what's going on at this ceremony, much like a soldier's uniform as he represents uh, his country. Can you imagine what it'd be like if the bride, if a bride wore her dress around all the time, just you know, like the priest did when he served as a as a bride, if she just wore her dress all the time, and there would be this, you would go, whoa, right, this reminder that she's a bride. Right, just like the priests as they served God, they wore these garments. And I mean, it'd be a little weird probably now, but but uh, just a a mental image for you to think about. As we think of the clothing, it really brought to attention to the Israelites, you know, the weight of their calling and what they were called to do. And then not only in all the clothing, as they put the headdress on and in uh, this turban, they had a gold plate on the front on their forehead, and it said, "Holy to the Lord." And again, reminding those that, you know, were, were sacrificing and bringing it. As, and as they serve, certainly, that their calling, what they were doing, they were called and they were called to serve God. And so we see in the dress the importance of the calling to which God had called them. And you'll also notice there was no footwear in any of the clothing. There was no footwear. And it reminds us of the time that Moses at the burning bush, what did God say to Moses when Moses approached? He said, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is, is holy ground, right? And the place where the, holy, where the priest and the high priest served God was holy ground because it's where God's presence dwelt, it's where God met man. So we see the priestly garments, but we also have the, there is a parallel and that is the Christian garments because there's clothing for us as believers. In the New Testament, clothing is used as a metaphor many times to signify character and virtues in the lives of those who follow Christ. And Jesus makes it very clear in the New Testament that God judges the heart of those who follow him not what they look like on the outside or even in their actions in the way that they live so if you're hoping that i was going to use this text to you know argue to bring back the three-piece suit and the dresses for the ladies i'm not going to do that this morning because god looks at the heart of the person not that you can't do that not that you can't wear that you know i was going to wear jeans and a, and a shirt you know up here and no, i wasn't but ripped jeans and uh to make a point i'm kidding but um, God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at us wearing things to be righteous or us doing things to be righteous. And I want to point you to Matthew 23 as we read, and we can see what, what God and what Jesus truly values. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful with your acts of righteousness with the things that you do the clothing you wear but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness so you also outwardly appear righteous to others but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness it doesn't matter if we wear the clothes of righteousness and yet our hearts are far from God that doesn't matter right that's what Jesus is saying you appear righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So, what does the Bible say then that we ought to be clothed in as believers? In Psalm one thirty-nine or one thirty-two, verse nine, it says to be clothed in righteousness. In Isaiah sixty-one, verse ten, to put on salvation. We see this put on to be clothed in. Colossians three, verse fourteen, to be to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility meekness and patience and in Romans 13 to put on the armor of light in verse 12 and in 14 to put on Jesus Christ as opposed to the flesh to put on Jesus Christ so may God help us to care more about the inner man what the inner man is saying to God than what are the outward acts of righteousness may show or appear to the world and I think that's what we're getting at in this clothing, in Leviticus 8 and in Matthew 23, in this ceremony. But then also, we, as we come to verses 10 to 12, we see the anointing oil, the next phase or part of this ceremony. If you'll listen as I read Exodus 30, that deals with, we've, we've read this in our, in our plans again, which is just by the grace of God, so cool that we get to just point back to that. But Exodus 30, verse 32 to 33, it shall not be poured on the body, of any ordinary person and you shall make no other like it in composition it is holy and it shall be holy to you whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people the significance the weight of this anointing oil anyone tries to create this recreate this use this or put it on anyone that's an outsider was to be cut off from their people there was significance to this oil, and it wasn't to be remade. There was a purpose, one purpose for it. And we noticed there was three things that, in this text anyways, that uh, in Leviticus 8, that were anointed at this ceremony. The first being Aaron. He was the only one who had the oil poured on his head. And Aaron had that oil poured on because he alone was going to serve as the, as the high priest between God and his people. His sons were going to serve as priests, And so we see the significance of God empowering and coming upon Aaron there at the anointing. And then we also see in verse 30, the priests were anointed. The oil was sprinkled on their garments in their service to God. Again, setting them apart for service to him. And then we see the tabernacle and everything inside the tent of meeting was anointed and consecrated with oil. And in Exodus 30, where I just read, if you continue on reading that chapter, you will see... Everything had oil poured all, all over. The altars in, inside the temple, the seat inside the temple, it was all consecrated, set apart, anointed, holy, and it was meant to be used in service to God. That was the point of it. And the reality that we learned about a few weeks ago is that, or a month ago I should say, in Leviticus is that God has already done that for us. God has anointed us. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Verse 21, it says this, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And he has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God anoints us and has with the Holy Spirit when we accept him as Savior. He anoints us for service. He prepares us for service by giving us gifts, by giving him his Holy Spirit. And he alone calls us. And all those things if we don't have those, we're powerless to serve God and honor God. And, it's, and we see this anointing in our lives when the ministry of the Holy Spirit is at work. In, in our lives to teach us God's Word, to give us strength to obey and to flee from sin. We see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and it's evidence of this anointing that God has placed on us. And so we alone as believers have been set apart, anointed to serve God in the power of His strength and what He provides. And then the final right or rights that we come to are the sacrifices in verse 14, falling right to 29. At this point in the text, Moses is serving as the high priest because Aaron has not yet been made the high priest. So Moses is kind of serving as that high priest that Aaron's going to step into, and so to speak, take the baton from him. And then Moses is going to go back and, and serve as, as an Israelite and, and not be the high priest anymore. And Aaron and his sons at this point in Leviticus, as we've already said, they're just like any other Israelite. They haven't been, uh, they haven't been anointed or consecrated or set apart until this ceremony. And so their sin needed to be dealt with, much like what we read about already in the sacrifices. Their sin needed to be dealt with just like any other Israelite. And so the first offering, before you can offer the burnt offering of dedication and the fellowship offering of thanksgiving, you need the sin offering to deal with and atone for the sin that is there and, and to deal with that. And so that's what we see first. The bull that is offered as a sin offering, and it's very similar to the sin offering that we've already studied. The, the significant difference in this offering is that Moses did not take the blood of the bull and go into the temple and sprinkle it all over the, the veil and all over the altar inside the temple where the, the priest served, because they had not been in the temple serving, and they hadn't had a chance to um, dirty it, so to speak, with their sin. And their sinfulness, and so they didn't go into the temple to sacrifice, it so to speak, with their sin and their sinfulness, and so they didn't go into the temple to sacrifice that. He just on the altar, he poured the blood and sprinkled it on the altar during this time, and we see that was much like how the Israelites dealt with it in their when the, and a normal Israelite brought their sin offering to God. But it's at this point where we see the. Uh, where we see the washing that we talked about earlier kind of come to fruition and to full in the blood that is atoning for the sin of the priest, sin of Aaron. And then in verse 18 to 20, we see the burnt offering. And this was, if you remember what we've studied about the burnt offering, this is a dedication offering, a commitment offering that what I'm bringing to God is wholly dedicated, committed to God. Much like as a believer, it's our lives, Romans 12. It's our lives that are the offering to God, and the commitment and the dedication of our whole lives, but it's this burnt offering that is brought to uh, be sacrificed, and it's a ram, and it was to atone for the priests again, and they made this offering to signify their commitment to serving God, to serve the living God, much like the words that, we've, that we sing in, take my life, take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee, take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise, Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. This commitment, this dedication to serving the living God, of giving their whole lives to do that. And then in verse 22 to verse 29, we see the fellowship offering, the final of the three offerings to be brought in this ordination or this consecration ceremony. And in your Bibles, it may be called the ordination uh, offering. That's because there, it is a little different. There's a few elements in, that were added to this offering, enough that, we, that the text calls it an ordination offering, but it really carries with it the same theme of the fellowship, the Thanksgiving offering. And you'll see that as you read through it, as they participate in eating of that sacrifice later after certain parts of it have been given to God but this ordination offering was distinct in what they did with the blood. And you'll notice that in those verses in, in the 20s. The blood was placed on three different parts of Aaron's body. It was placed on the ear. And the ear signifying the the uh, ability, the desire to listen, to constantly listen to the voice of God. And then on the thumb, in the willingness to do the work of God with their hands and on his foot to to signify that uh, Aaron was to walk in God's ways. And so there was importance in where they put the blood during that fellowship offering. And then we also notice that there were certain parts of that offering that were offered to God and waved before him as dedications to God, as commitments to God, those, those pieces, the breast, and other things, and also where the unleavened bread comes in and that it's waved before God and then it's burnt on the altar there. And then the rest of it is participated in, much like we've learned about with the Thanksgiving offering in earlier texts in Leviticus. And then as we finally come to the end of our ceremony, or we think we're almost there in verse 30 to 36, we see the completion of the consecration. Verse 30, we see the final act. Moses took some of the anointing oil of the blood, and of the blood rather that was on the altar, and he sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also uh, on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his son and his son's garments as well and so everything was consecrated with blood and oil in this final act and then in verse 35 we read these interesting words at the entrance of the tent of meeting you shall remain day and night for seven days performing what the lord has charged so that you do not die for so i have been commanded it's interesting when we think of the wedding ceremony can you imagine getting to the end of that day and you're about to do your sparkler send-off, and then the officiant comes up to you and says, hold on, you're going to have to wait seven days before you guys can officially be married and together. And be like, no, thank you. But what we see in the text here is God, and God has a purpose for that. God calls them to to continue seven days in the temple. And as we read in Exodus 29, they were to make... Sacrifice of the sin offering and also the anointing of the altar. They were to do that every day for seven days as they completed this ceremony. And so this ceremony took seven days to complete. This is the first day. And then we have more context as we've read in Exodus 29 in the past what they actually did for those seven days while they were there. Seven days reminds us of creation of the seven and seven, that number of perfection and of completion in, in God taking seven days to create earth. And God takes seven days of the priests serving him, making sacrifices, anointing those things, and again pointing to the significance of all of that and helping them to be drawn into seeing that significance of the calling that God has called them to. And then in the end, as we get to 36, we see that reminder of God's grace. Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded Moses. We talked about where Aaron had come from, and yet at the end of this ceremony you know, we look back on that and Aaron obeyed what God had commanded and he did what God had commanded. God's grace in calling him and in using him. A man that was a sinner just like anyone else. And so none of this ceremony was man's invention. None of it, the priesthood, the anointing the system itself the sacrificial system it was all obedience to God as we've seen in verse 36 and the same is required for us today as royal priests as God's anointed people that have been called for service to him we've been called to complete obedience we've been called to serve a gracious holy loving God in complete obedience and the reality is that we don't have these ceremonies when we accept Christ we don't we don't do these ceremonies but the, but the rites that we see in Leviticus 8 are all realities that we now share in because of the cross and, and because of Christ. Christ died a sacrificial death on our behalf, cleansing us before God. God calls us to serve Him and in service to Him. And this doesn't just mean pastors and those who are super dedicated that come to all the events. This is everybody if you, are, if you bear the name of Christ, you have been called to serve God. Your gifts may look differently. You may do it a little bit differently. But you've all, we've all been called to live lives sacrificially like Romans 1 or Romans 12. To sacrifice our lives in service to God. We've all been called to do that. And God anoints us with his Holy Spirit. He gives us power. And he progressively sanctifies us as we serve him. And we're called to be clothed in righteousness as we've looked. And we are a royal priest as we read in 1 Peter a few weeks ago. So you may read this passage next year as you get to Leviticus 8. You may read this again sometime this year. And you may think, what does this have to do with me? And I hope you can see that this has everything to do with you as a believer. The weightiness of the calling which God has called us to. This whole ceremony shows us that. That it's a great responsibility to serve A king to serve the holy king that we serve. It's an honor and it's a responsibility and it requires complete obedience from us to die to self, to die to our will, and to live for another. And we do that because someone and some, Jesus has done that for us. Right? And it's no little thing that Jesus did in dying on the cross for our sins and paying the penalty for our sin and living the life of perfection that we couldn't do. And so the gospel demands everything from us because everything was given for us on the cross. Would you pray with me as we close? Father God, we thank you for this morning and for this time together, God. And we are so grateful for your grace in our lives and in your calling us to serve you. You're a gracious king. And God, we just pray for your strength, for uh, your Holy Spirit to give us the power to live lives of complete obedience to you. Help us to sacrifice our wills and our lives to live for you, and not because we think that you are going to love us more, but simply because the gospel of Christ compels us to do nothing else but that, to live a life of sacrifice to you, to give our lives to you, because it was given for us, and a life was given for us in Christ on the cross many years ago. So God, we thank you for this ceremony and the reminder of it, and the the reminders that are in it of your promises and calls on our lives. And God, we pray for the grace that you give us, continue to give that to us as we serve you. And God, help us as we serve you. We thank you for your love and your grace and who you are. And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.